Well, so excited to be uh, with you tonight. This is awesome. Um, I want to just acknowledge a few people here tonight. Uh, Dad wins the award for bringing the most people tonight. Dad brought his connect group, which is awesome. I met them during the week, and a, a really funny thing happened. Stan, do you mind if I, if I share what happened? <laughs> so Pastor Stan runs the connect group that my dad's a part of, and I went to check it out during the week. Awesome connect group. And um, Stan said, hey, guys, just send me a message um, with your name just so I can keep in touch with you guys. Just send me a message saying, hey, Stan, you're ruining my life. And then put your name at the end. So I straight away, within like two minutes, sent him a message saying, hey, Stan, Pastor Stan, you're ruining my life, Dorian. And then at like 7 a.m. the next morning, I'm getting a message from Stan, and I'm like, this is weird. I'm still in bed. I'm still asleep, and I'm getting a, a message from Pastor Stan. And then there's a, a, a message from him saying, hey, I'm so sorry. Can you please call me? And I'm like, oh, no. He's just seen that message. He's just seen the message saying, you're ruining my life. And he hasn't realized that it was a joke. So I call him up and I'm like, Pastor Stan, what's going on? And he's like, man, I got your message. And, you know, because he's American, living in Israel, that kind of thing. And he was up all night because um, I sent him that message. So, so, so sorry, <laughs> Pastor Stan. I hope you've um, got, you've caught up on sleep. But so good, to, so good to have you with us. Hey, who's excited about this series we're in? Foundations in Philippians, right? Who remembers when they were a kid and they thought it was the Philippines? St. Paul's letter to the Philippines, to the Philippines. Yeah, it's not. It's Philippi, the Philippians. And uh, we're looking at chapter 4, verse 19. And it says, God shall supply all our needs according to his glory in Christ Jesus. According to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And... Um, I want to, the, uh, the topic this week is provision, but I don't want to talk about provision in the, materi- in the kind of material sense, I want to talk about provision in the wilderness, and for, for those of us who are at presence, um, you know, Robert Madhu, uh, and by the way, we've got our own resident Robert Madhu here, Patrick, are, they, are those glasses new? Yeah, Awesome. Like, seriously channeling Robert Madhu there, really cool. <laughs> but who loved that, that preach by Robert Madhu where he was talking about going from the water to the wilderness, going from the water to the wilderness, from the water to the wilderness. And um, it was a great preach, but I'm sitting there going, oh, no, I'm going to the wilderness, you know. But it's true, we always end up, somehow in life, we end up in a wilderness. And um, Jesus said you would. He says, there will be trouble, there will be tribulation, you might find yourself in a wilderness. There might be someone here who's just come out of a wilderness, there might be someone here going into a wilderness, um, and there might be someone here who's just, um, you, don't, you might not even realize it yet, but you're heading into one. But God is good, and He provides in the wilderness. And so, this, the title for the message is Provision for the Process. Provision for the Process. And what I mean by process is the outworking of God's um, salvation in our lives, the outworking of um, each one of us, God has ordained a process that we will walk through, and um, that's what I mean by process, it's the liberating work of God in your life, actually working it out, walking it out, living it out, 
the process of finding freedom. I don't know about you, but there might, this is how I feel, and this is, I've been feeling this this year more than ever, but I feel like I should feel freer than I do, right? Does, does anyone relate to that? I, I feel like I should feel freer than I do. Like there are certain fears and stuff that still come and um, try and latch onto me, and I'm like, hang on, if, if, I, if what the Bible tells me is true, then I should be free of all that stuff. And I shouldn't actually wake up any morning worrying about the day ahead because of what Christ has said in His Word. And Galatians 5.1, Paul says, it's for freedom that Christ set you free. And that's a scripture that's kind of been, you know, not bugging me, but I've been trying to work it out lately. And I was kind of thinking of an example, right? So if, for example, Rose... um, was trying to cut a chicken with our Dyson, I would go up to her and I would say, babe, it's for vacuuming that I gave you a Dyson, you know? It would suggest that she's not using the Dyson for the purpose or in the right way. Or if, for example, the house um, was really messy, I might go up to her and say, hey, it's for vacuuming that God gave you a, that we, you know, gave you a Dyson. All right. Don't take that the wrong way, right? I love the Dyson. It's my toy, actually. It's my toy. Phenomenal things. That's just a plug for Dyson there, right? But Paul is saying that you can have freedom and not use it. It's for freedom that Christ set you free. That you can actually have freedom but not be set free. Or you can be set free and not actually walk in freedom. Um, And Paul knows that you can have something without using it. You can have freedom without using it. Um, You can have it without walking uh, walking in it. Um, Some of you may know I used to breed birds when I was, you know, a young teenager. Uh, It was my hobby. It was my passion. I loved it. Thanks, Mum and Dad, for the aviary and all the birds. Loved it. It was a really cool period in my life. And I had this two two metres by one metre aviary, and that's where I'd hang out after school every day right, from about year seven to about probably year nine or something, year ten, and then I grew up and got interested in other things, in other birds. (laughs) But anyway, (laughs) the thing about going into the aviary, I would approach the entry into the aviary very carefully because I knew that, and the birds knew, that if there was an opportunity, they would just try and fly out. They just wanted freedom, right, they just wanted to get out of there. And so you'd approach it and you'd unlock the thing and you'd walk in like this and you'd, you'd kind of use the, the least space possible because they just come flying at you. Like they just wanted to escape. And um, on the odd occasion, one would escape and um, it would be devastating for, for a, you know, a young bird breeder like myself losing part of your stock. But after kind of got into year nine and just got over the whole bird thing, you know, just was getting tired of not cleaning the thing. And, you know, I just said, you know what? I'm just going to let them go. I'm just going to let them go. They're going to be free. And I said, I'm just going to open the door and let them go. And I opened the door and, you know, this was the end of my bird breeding empire. And some of them flew out and some of them just stayed in there. And I thought, this is it. This is the end. You know, I was kind of relieved because by that stage, it was just kind of over, over the whole thing. 
And then a few days later, I was surprised, and don't confuse this with the other bird story that you all know about where the bird came and flew in my head. You know, it's a different story. But anyway, a lot of the birds that actually flew away, a few days later, I came back, the door was wide open, but a lot of those birds that had actually flew away had come back, budgies and cockatiels and things like that. And I was sitting there scratching my head thinking, hang on a sec, you guys were desperate to get out of here. You couldn't wait to get out of here. Every opportunity you had, you would fly towards an open door. You just wanted freedom. You just wanted to get out of here. And now you have your freedom. You've left for a couple of days, but you've come back. And I I was shocked. that it, It was such a shocking sight. The Avery door was wide open and the birds were just in there. I was like, that's not supposed to happen. They're supposed to fly out. They're supposed to enjoy the wild. They're supposed to go out there and find food and have freedom. But no, they, they just wanted to stay there. And I found it really, really bizarre. Go with me to um, Exodus chapter 16, verse 2 to 5. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died in the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you've brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I'll rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they follow my instruction. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. We're going to jump to Exodus 1627. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and instruction? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was like It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. For 40 years, they ate manna, right? Rose made a delicious curry during the week. She made a massive pot of it. And, um, you know, after the third day came, she's like, can we eat the curry? And I'm like, nah. Like, it's, you know, we've had two days of it. I don't think I could go a third day. But these guys ate it for like 40 years, manna. Now, the desert, the Israelites are in the wilderness, and don't get it mixed up again when you were a kid, who used to read it, dessert, <laughs> right, dessert and desert, I still don't know how to spell the, the two words, but just picture it sometimes, if you just want to amuse yourself, Jesus taking them into a giant moose, <laughs> chocolate moose or something like that, but think about that later, not right now, because we're in church. But why are they in the, de- in the desert? Why are they there? Why are they in a place with no food, no water, scorching hot, sand everywhere, sand getting in your mouth, flying into your eyes, in- into your ears, really, really uncomfortable, really, really arduous. Why are they there? Well, the, the striking thing about this is that they're there because God's led them there. They're in the wilderness because God has led them there. And if we put it in context, God led them there by pillar of smoke by day and pillar of fire by night. And, you know, 
At one point, I thought, no, maybe, maybe they were just sm- smoking a lot of shisha that day. <laughs> but no, it was the presence of God leading them pillar by smoke during the day, pillar of fire by night. They're taken out of a land of slavery into the wilderness. And they spend 40 years there instead of going straight to the promised land. Why? Well, we begin to get a glimpse into why when we look at verse 3, which says, um, the Israelites said to Moses and Aaron, if only we died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you've brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. And in the message version, it's translated into a much more interesting way. The message version version says, they say, the Israelites said, why didn't God let us die in comfort in Egypt where we had lamb stew and all the bread we could eat? You've brought us out into this wilderness to starve us to death, the whole company of Israel. Sorry, but die, why didn't God let us die in comfort in Egypt? Hang on a sec. You guys hated Egypt. You grumbled about being slaves in Egypt. You couldn't wait to get out of Egypt. Just like my birds couldn't wait to get out of that Avery, you, Israel, could not wait to get out of Israel. It was the bane of your existence. You were oppressed. You were whipped. You were slaves. Um, Pharaoh owned your lives and he owned your bodies and you hated every single minute of it. And now you're out of there and you're in the wilderness, but you're looking back at Egypt and you're remembering it fondly. You're remembering it fondly, thinking, hey, that wasn't such a bad thing. I could actually go back there and enjoy it. I could actually go back there and live a good life. And really what you're hearing there is the language of addiction. It's the language of addiction. It's the language of denial. It's actually um, denying reality. And... Denial is like a screen where you don't see the misery that is actually there. And you deny the misery you've been there and you end up going back to where you were. And even though they were technically out of slavery, and this is the point, in their hearts, in their spirits, internally, they were still slaves. They'd left slavery, but they were still slaves. And here's the principle I want you to catch tonight. You can get people out of slavery in an instant but you can't get slavery out of people except through a long process you can get people out of slavery in an instant but to get slavery out of someone takes a long process see in an instant as soon as they crossed that red sea it was a military thing it was a political thing it was a legal thing they were free set free but there was still slavery on the inside of them. The way they thought, their identity, the way they thought of themselves, the way they thought of their their people group. Inside, identity, spirit, thought life, feelings was that of slavery. And here's the other thing I wanted to say. The breakthrough doesn't necessarily free you. The breakthrough doesn't necessarily grow you, but the wilderness does. See, they hadn't, learnt how to be and think and work out that liberation into their lives. They were free, but they weren't working it out into their lives. 
They were still slaves. And we, we get in Deuteronomy 8, Moses gives us the reason why. He says, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way into the wilderness those 40 years. And he gives them the reason. He tells them why. He says, to humble you and test you in order to know what was in your heart. In other words, the reason why you didn't go through the wilderness is, the reason why you had to go through the wilderness was because you didn't know your own heart. You still didn't know who you were. So God's saying to Israel, sorry guys, but I liberated you, but you, you didn't get it. You didn't get what liberation meant. You were free on the outside, but on the inside, you were still slaves. And I had to take you through the wilderness to work out that liberation. Yeah, give God a hand. And so the purpose of the wilderness isn't rapid transportation. It's not like just, you know, God kind of teleporting you out of there. But it's actually transformation. And transformation in God's terms is often slow. That's not to discount God can move in an instant on someone's life. And he can transform a life in, in an instant. But I'd say most of the time it's actually slow transformation, renewing of the mind, seeking God, reading the word, getting built up getting in community, it's slow transformation. So imagine, and I think of myself, I remember when I first came to this church six or seven years ago, I really struggled with a lot of condemnation. And um, I remember Pastor Nat prophesying over me and saying, you know, I break that condemnation off your life. And I felt something break in that moment. But it took a couple of years of actually really just being on the altar and letting the truth of that work itself out in my life. I believe I was set free in that moment, but for me to actually work it out in my spirit, in my heart, in my life, took a couple of years. So imagine a guy who, to, to give you an example, um, a guy who's really successful, works super, super hard, probably a workaholic even, um, but the reason why he works very hard is because he never got the approval of his parents. And no matter how good he was, his parents always criticized him and said, look, you're not, you're not good enough and we, we don't approve. And um, you know, he's, he's a good looking guy, but he lacks a lot of confidence, um, overworks trying to get people's approval. And um, he's not very good at relationships because he doesn't trust himself. He doesn't feel confident enough, that kind of thing. And he comes across the gospel, he comes to Silverwater Church, he sees the sign, he walks in, he sits in the, in the back row, and he hears the gospel. And the gospel is, blows his mind. He's heard of religions before, he's heard of all the different spiritualities, he's even dabbled in them a bit, and he comes and he hears the gospel message, and it's completely opposite to every other religion he's heard. Every other religion he's heard has said, uh, give, God has said, give me a good record and I'll bless you give me a good record, obey me, and I'll bless you. And he sits here and he hears the gospel, which is complete opposite. And for the first time in his life, he hears, um, I'll give you a good record. I will give you a good record. I will give you a good record without you having to do anything. And he, he hears that because of the life Jesus lived and the death Jesus died, he can have freedom. 
And for the first time, he's told, you know, if you believe in Jesus, God will actually look at you and say, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And for the first time, he hears those words and it, it I mean, he breaks down. And he's on the altar here and he's crying, he's in tears. And it's, it's the greatest news he's ever heard. It's the good news and it's the gospel and it's changed him in that moment right here. And we see that week in, week out, every week, people on this altar discovering that and being amazed by it and, and loving it and just wanting so much of it and they're here and it's really affecting their lives. And he's like, my life has changed so much. And he leaves and he's like, my life's gonna be so different from now on. That is an incredible revelation and Monday he's all good. And then what happens by Wednesday? Wednesday, no more, he's got no more, um, no more confidence issues. Uh, he's got no more relationship issues. He's stopped overworking, right? No, of course not, of course not. He's, he's in the wilderness. And you, in the moment on the altar, he's actually been set free. He really has been set free, but, he, but the slavery hasn't come out of him yet. He's, he's still a slave. Um, and the only way he can work it into his life so it affects the way he feels, the way he reacts, the way he thinks is through a process, and that's God's process. And God takes every single one of us through that process, and it is the wilderness. It's in suffering. It's in hardship. It's only in those times when we actually access what's in our hearts, sorry, what's in our head and push it down into our hearts. We don't, we don't do that when things are going well, but th when things are going hard, that's when we go to the will of God and drink from God's will. Only in suffering are you forced to take a hold of what you know up here. He knows it, he's been told it, but he's got to take a hold of it. Um, so you can be zapped, into freedom in an instant, but it's only through a long and arduous process with God that you are actually set free. And we don't like that, especially my generation. We don't like that. You know, we want it to be instantaneous. You know, Stephen Furtick spoke about the, micro, you know, the, the microwave generation, and I'm like that. Like, let me just stand here and do it to me. You know, zap it out of me, God. Change my heart in an instant. You can do it. You know, give me you know, give me a pill, give me, give me something instantaneous, just zap me. But God's actually saying, no, there's a process and you have to participate in that process. You have to participate in that process. Yeah, give him a hand. Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians, this present suffering is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. What does that mean, a weight of glory? Well, it's more than just a heavenly reward. We all understand that to be a heavenly reward in the future. But he's basically saying no suffering, no glory. And what does the word in Hebrew, glory, actually means weight. It means um, substance. And people who've been through the wilderness, you, you know them. You know when someone's been through the wilderness because you sense that substance, you sense that weightiness about them. You sense that, that man, this person, there's, there's some glory about them. 
they've walked through the wilderness. And you can see it, you can sense it, you can hear it on someone. And so God's saying, do you want to be a happy person? Do you want to be a strong person? Do you want to be a person of substance? Do you want to be a resilient person? Then come on the process with me. Come through the wilderness with me. And going back to our initial scripture, Philippians 4.19, it says, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Hang on. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in weight in Christ Jesus. You get that weight in the wilderness. You get that glory in the wilderness and it's in Christ Jesus. And it's actually through that that he supplies your needs. Um, and often we come to church and we're like, man, I just need that one word. And I know I'm like this too. Man, where's that next book that's going to change my life? You know, I just want that one thing that's going to change my life. Um, you know, where's that one minister who's going to come and preach a message that's going to rock me and my life's never going to be the same? But um, it's not like that. You know, we want it to be kind of passive, but Jesus is saying, no, you've got to be an active participant in it too. So now I want to quickly talk about the provision of God in the wilderness. I've spoken about why he takes us through the process, and I want to talk about how he provides in the wilderness. Is that all right? Great. So he doesn't lead you into the wilderness without providing for you. God is good. He is faithful. So he won't lead you there without providing for you. And he provides bread like he did to the Israelites, but he doesn't just provide the bread, he actually tells you how to get it. Because he knows, he can, he can provide it, but if you don't know how to get it, you can still starve to death. Um, there's manna, you have to go get it, and there's instruction. Go get it six days of the week, don't get it on the seventh. Um, get it every day, distribute it equally, etc., etc. And if I was God's miracle consultant, right, and God came up to me and he goes, what do you think of that miracle? What do you think the miracle of the manna? Good one, eh? And um, I'd say, I'd say, yeah, it's good, but, you know, why not go all the way? Like, why not just put it in their stomach? You know, why not when they wake up in the morning and think, hey, I'm, I'm a little bit hungry. How about that breakfast? And boom, it's just there. Well, there's a couple of things God would say. He'd say, actually, the first, the first miracle of them leaving Egypt was quite a passive miracle. All they had to do was walk across the Red Sea. They, did, they really did nothing. They just walked. Um, but Jesus is saying to actually, God is saying to actually work that first miracle out in your life, you have to go and get it. You have to go and get it. We want the manna just to appear in our stomachs. That would be so easy. But God's actually saying, no, I want you to get up every morning and go and get it. Because you have to be an active participant in this. And if you don't go and get it, you will starve to death. I'm providing it, but you've got to go and get it. And so often, God has provided the thing we need. We've just got to get it. It's sitting there. We've just got to go after it. There is sustenance. There is strength. There is sweetness. There is everything we need. God has provided it. We've actually just got to get up and get it. And if you don't get it, if they didn't get it in the desert, they would have died. There was no other food source. So what is that strength that God provides? Well, he, he shows us in this scripture, it comes in three ways. Um, the first way is thoughtful strength. In Deuteronomy 8, Moses says this about the manna. He says, God humbled you, causing you to hunger, 
and then feeding you with manna to teach you that man does not live on bread, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So in the physical wilderness, God gives you manna. And he's saying, but that physical manna in the physical wilderness actually points to spiritual manna in the spiritual wilderness. It's, it points to when you're feeling emotionally, you're in an emotional wilderness, you're in a spiritual wilderness, you're in a personal wilderness. He's saying there is manna. And what is that manna? What does he say it is? What does the manna represent? It represents every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That physical manna is just the representation of the spiritual manna, and that is manna that proceeds from the mouth of God. Yeah, give Jesus some praise. But, like the physical manna, you have to go and get it, and you actually have to work it into yourself. You have to eat it. You have to put it in your mouth. You have to swallow it. You have to digest it. It has to actually, takes hours and hours for it to process through your body to get that sustenance to get that nourishment. And what's God saying? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, you have to take that, you have to turn that truth into bread. You have to turn that truth into bread. You have to take it, you have to eat it, you have to swallow it. It has to go through your body, it has to go past your heart. It, it takes hours for it, days, years, for it to work out in your body. The Bible, the Word of God, we need to eat it, we need to process it, we need to live. God has provided it. He's provided everything we need in the Bible. We just need to feast on it. We need to turn that truth into bread. Chew it, digest it, work it into your system. And, and what does that look like practically? It actually means you have to think. Like, just before I got up here, you're getting a bit nervous, you know, silly thoughts come into your mind, you want to do a good job and all that, and I, and I just went to the Bible, and it says, don't worry about what you say or how you'll say it, because the Holy Spirit will speak through you, and I just had to take that word and just eat it, and I had to meditate on it, and I just had to let that be my truth, I had to turn that truth into bread, because I don't want to get up here and, and worry when God's telling me don't worry. He's got to take his truth and turn it into bread. But it requires us to think. So if his truth says you're accepted, you're adopted, you're a son of God, you're an heir to the throne of heaven, he'll never leave you nor forsake you. If everything that he says is true, and if you're digesting it and working it out, then whatever you're going through, really, the greatest evil, the darkest shadow is just a passing thing. Because if all that is true, that you're chosen, you're accepted, you're loved, you're adopted, you're a child of God, you are forgiven, you are pardoned, if all that is true, then whatever comes, the darkest evil will just be a passing thing. It's just a passing thing. It's temporary, it's tiny, it's small. And Often we'll say, you know, just praise God in the wilderness. 
just lift your hands up and praise God. And that's good, but sometimes that can be misinterpreted. We definitely need to do that. But sometimes that can be interpreted as just ignore your circumstance and live and, and just praise God and hope that thing will go away. But no, it's actually looking at that thing and holding that thing up to God and saying, hang on a sec, this doesn't line up with your truth. This doesn't line up with your truth. Turn that truth into bread. Amen? Amen. The second way is relational strength. Relational strength. The first way was, um, what did I say? Thinking, thoughtful strength. The second way is relational strength. Manna comes every day. And again, if I was God's miracle consultant and he came and he said, what did you think? I said, you know, that's, that's good, but why, again, why every day? Why not, you know, why not once a week? Why not once a month? Why all the time? And Jesus, when he's teaching us how to pray and he says, give us this day our daily bread, almost certainly, without a shadow of a doubt, I reckon, he's pointing to the manna in the heaven, in, in, in the desert about the manner, and he said, he's saying, in prayer, you need a moment-by-moment dependent relationship with God. It can't be once a week, it can't be once a month, it can't just appear inside you, it's got to be a moment-by-moment relationship with God. And what we actually need is not to go to God simply for our needs, but to go to God as the thing you need. Rather than going to Him for the things you need, go to Him as the thing you need. Go to Him as the thing you need and you'll find that you will be refreshed, you will be built up, you will be encouraged, you will feel His overwhelming love, His overwhelming grace and you'll, you'll be sustained that way. So th- there's a difference. Um, and who, who knows that? You realize how great God is and how good He is and how faithful He is when He's all you've got. We've all been there. We've all been there. Don't go to Him simply for the things you need. Go to Him as the thing you need. I um, was reading something earlier today and I came across this and it's a guy, his name is Frank Lorbach, um, minister from 1920s, 30s, and it says this, He says, um, he wrote of how in his personal experiment of moment-by-moment submission to the will of God, the fine texture of his work and life experience was transformed. In January of 1930, he began to cultivate the habit of turning his mind to Christ for one second out of every minute. Don't know how he did it. Turning his mind to Christ for one second out of every minute. And he actually released a leaflet about how to do that back in the 1920s. He said, this sense of cooperation, hang on, after only four weeks, he reported this, I feel simply carried along each hour, doing my part in a plan which is far beyond myself. This sense of cooperation with God in little things is what so astonishes me, for I never have felt it this way before. I need something and turn around to find it waiting for me. I must work to be sure, but there is God working along with me. From a lonely missionary post in the Philippines, that's the actual Philippines, not. (laughs) God raised Frank Lorbach to the status of Christian world statesman and spokesman for Christ. He founded the World Literacy Crusade, still in operation today, and he went on to do all these great, amazing things. 
moment by moment relationship with Christ. How good is that? The last way, there's thoughtful strength, there's relational strength, and finally, there's communal strength in the wilderness. Exodus 16, 16, each one is to gather as much as he needs. Take an omer for every individual you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some gathered little, and when they measured it by the omer, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. Each one gathered exactly as much as he needed. So what's, what's this saying? It's saying, Pastor Mick has very big hands. Rose has small hands. When they go out to get the manna in the morning, Mick's going to come back with 10 omers, and Rose is going to come back with five. But what they did was they brought it all together. And then they distributed it out. They brought it all into the community and then it was distributed. You don't just go and gather it for yourself, God's saying. You don't go and get it for your own tent. He says you go, you gather it, you bring it together, you measure it, so that the person with five people in their tent gets five omers. And the person with four people in their tent get four omers. I don't know what omers are. I have no idea. But it's a unit of measurement. In other words, he's saying, though it was gathered by individuals, it was distributed through community. You get it through community. And if I can call the band up, you get it through community. I remember the first um, really, you know, growing up Catholic in a Catholic church, but then going to Hillsong um, after that and loving it and wow, the way the word was preached, I'd never heard that before. And, I, and it really changed my life in that year. And I was loving every minute of it. And I was particularly loving the fact that I could walk in there, hear the word of God and leave without anyone bothering me. And if anyone did come up to me, I was, you know, I've got to go. And, you know, just wanted to go in there, receive and leave. But I realized that I was getting hungry after about, after doing that for a year, I was getting really hungry. And I started asking around for a connect group and um, it didn't quite eventuate. But I, was, I realized I was starting to starve. I couldn't just go there and receive the word every week and live as an island, live as an individual in my own little world for the rest of the week. Um, I was getting great truth, but my ability to work it out in my life was actually limited by the fact that I was trying to do it by myself and with no one else around me. And you can starve in the wilderness because manna is distributed through community. I was actually starving. <coughs> I was getting fed, but I was actually starving. Only when I came here and got into a connect group and started getting connected with people, that's when that real liberating freedom started to work out in my life. This is, it's in community that you actually get fed, where you actually sharpen each other, as Rose was saying, where you challenge each other, where you build each other up, where if someone falls, you accept them and you forgive them and you encourage them again. You need deep community or you will starve. And that would be my encouragement to you. 
when you're in the wilderness. If you're in the wilderness, you need to get into a connect group. You need to get into a serving team. You need to surround yourself with community. And I want to encourage us, especially our young adult community, you um, be that. Be that. Whenever you're planning something, invite someone else along. Think about, hey, who's there that I can invite to this? Rather than just, hey, a, a crew of two or three of us, let's make it a big thing. Let's, let's expand our community because that is how people get fed. Amen. Amen. Let's give Jesus a hand. Awesome. God is good. He is so good. The wilderness has got nothing on you. He's provided it. It's all there. He's saying, hey, I want you to be an active participant. Come. Come. The provision is there. The provision is there. Hey, why don't we all just close our eyes, bow our heads. Oh, Jesus, we're so thankful for you. You're so good. Thank you for the good news, for the gospel, that we are made right with God, that you loved us before we loved you. It's good news. It's good news. It's done. The difference between good news and good advice, good news says it's done. Good advice tells you what you've got to do, but good news tells you that it's done. You don't have to do a thing. It's been done 